0: Maybe seated. Thank you, Claudette. New member stepping up and reading scripture right away in worship. It's great to be with all of you this morning. My name is Charlie Dunn. And, you know, one of the books that I've been reading recently that I have really enjoyed is a book by an author named John Mark Comer. And the book is called Live No Lies. And at one point in the book, he tells a story about the the heavy metal rock band Metallica. Some of you might be surprised to hear that I am a huge fan of Metallica. And you'd be right in that surprise, because that's not true. I am not a (laughs) big fan of Metallica, but I know that some of you probably are. Lots of people surely are fans of Metallica. And you know, it was back in the year two thousand that Metallica they had written this song. It's called I Disappear for the soundtrack of an upcoming movie called Mission Impossible 2. And uh, one morning, Metallica, they were were shocked. They were very concerned uh, to hear their new song playing on radio stations all across America. And you might be surprised here. You might think, well, why would they be concerned? I mean, it's their song. Wouldn't they be glad that it's playing on radio stations? The only problem was that they had not yet released that song. In fact, they hadn't even mixed it yet. They hadn't even edited it yet. And so they started investigating and asking, how did our song end up on the radio? And what they found was they found that their new song, along with all of the other songs that were going to be on this new album, as well as all of the rest of their music, was available to be shared and downloaded for free on a new website called Napster. Any of you remember Napster? And so naturally, Metallica, they sued Napster for $10 million for copyright infringement for racketeering. The case went to a federal district court, and the court sided with Metallica. They won in the court, but they lost in the court of public opinion. Americans turned against Metallica. Many of their fans turned against Metallica. They felt like these rockers had sold out for money. They were parody videos of these teenage heavy metal rockers growing up to drive golden Lamborghinis. And the argument that Napster made was an argument that a lot of people in the, the culture agreed with. Basically, it was this argument of, look, we're poor students. We can't afford to buy all of these albums as they come out, but we love Metallica's music. We're true fans. And so, look, it's not really going to affect them if they don't get the money. They're rich anyway. So what difference does it really make if we illegally download their songs for free? Metallica countered that argument with with really two arguments. Here's what, what they said. They said, first doesn't matter how rich we are, doesn't matter how rich anybody is, stealing from somebody else what is not yours, taking someone else's property is wrong. Stealing is wrong, hard stuff. And then secondly, they said, look, we worked really hard on this music. We poured our creative energy and giftedness into creating our music, our songs, our art. It's our music, and so therefore we should have the right to be able to say what will be done with it, how it will be used. Now, we're going to come back to that second argument a little bit later in the sermon this morning, but what's interesting about the first one, this, this simple argument that stealing is wrong, hard stop. is that if you look at most cultures throughout history, you, you look at nearly every society and civilization, in spite of all the ways that different cultures and societies might disagree about ethics and what is right and wrong, this is one of those ethical principles that seems to kind of cross all different cultures and societies that stealing is wrong, and therefore is typically in most societies also illegal. That's a thought that that nearly everybody has shared throughout history, and yet isn't it remarkable how quickly our society's thinking about this would change? How, How quickly people would begin to have a very different view, to think very differently about Uh, pirating songs or movies, you know, right after Napster, there were a lot of other um, services, piracy services, where you could download free songs, you could download free movies, and you get to 2006, just six years later. And, and, you know, my dad died recently, and I've been going through some of the things that he kept uh, over the years, like gifts and cards that I gave to him, and one of the things I found was this, this CD that I had burned for him in 2006. And, you know, it had all the songs that I knew that he liked or songs that we'd listened to on road trips together, and not one of those songs did I pay for. They were all illegally downloaded. (laughs) And I did not have the slightest bit of guilt about it. I was constantly burning CDs and swapping them with friends. My friends were too. I did not think it was a problem at all to, to be illegally downloading music. It did not take very long for our society's thinking to change. It became very socially acceptable um, to illegally download different forms of, of media. And, and I, think, I think that if you think about, okay, this lie that our culture had come to believe, that that stealing in this form was okay, it was acceptable. It's not hard to see some of the ways that believing that lie, that change in thinking, has had a a harmful impact upon our society since then. You know, whenever we believe lies about God's reality, it always leads to unraveling in some way. And I think you you see these days that there is a lot more um, theft, a lot more looting, um, especially for, for kind of low-dollar items. A number of stores lately I've been reading have had to, had to shut down their locations because of, of theft and looting that thought of, look, these are big corporations. They've got a ton of money, so it doesn't really matter if I steal a little bit off of their bottom line. I was in Home Depot the other day, and I, I checked out through the, the, the self-checkout, and I had a cart, and I started going to the door. And when I got to the door, it was like the cart hit the brakes, I didn't know a cart had brakes, but apparently it does now. There's like this little electronic sensor on it to keep you from filling your cart with, you know, merchandise and tools and just racing out the front door. You know, we think about all the issues, especially um, with, with China, with um, intellectual property, and, and, and we think about plagiarism and the way that that's become such a huge issue in, in schools and universities unraveling. As our society began to, to believe this lie, that, that stealing, even in the form of stealing music or, or media, it's not that big of a deal. It really is okay. And, and of course, that's just one example. But we, we, we've been in this teaching series throughout the fall. It's a series called Reimagine. Um, we took a break last Sunday um, because we wanted to, to mourn and grieve together over. Um, the tragic death of, of Brian Dunnigan, the senior pastor at Highland Park Prez, our planting congregation. Um, but today we're, we're coming back to this series, Reimagine. All throughout 2 Corinthians, Paul's giving us these pictures, these images to help us to reimagine what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to live for him in the world? And today we come to the image, the picture of warfare, of a battle. Paul, in the passage that Claudette read for us this morning, says that we are, or that we should be, engaged as Christians in a war, in a battle. You look at verse 3, for example, where Paul says that, that we do not wage war as the world wages war, but of course the assumption there is that we are nevertheless waging a sort of war. He says the weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. But of course, the assumption then is still that we are fighting a war and fighting with weapons. He says that we seek to demolish strongholds, like fortresses, to bring every thought and make it captive to Jesus. This is warfare language, the language of a war or a battle. Now, admittedly, Admittedly, the idea of us being engaged in in a sort of religious war, it maybe is not particularly settling language, maybe not the language or category that you and I are most uh, comfortable um, thinking within, given the fact that, A, we follow a Savior, Jesus, who is nonviolent. Remember Jesus, even when they came to arrest him with swords and clubs? told Peter to put away his sword. He said, why are you arresting me with weapons? I'm not leading an armed rebellion. Jesus allowed them to arrest him, to take him, to put him on a cross. He died for his enemies in love rather than fighting them in battle. So the language of warfare might seem strange for that reason. And then what's more, all the more so in our culture today, I think a lot of people in our world, rightly so, are pretty wary of the idea of religious warfare. You think about ever since the 9-11 attacks, the idea of of, of holy jihad in the Muslim faith. We think about the stain on church history of the Crusades, violence perpetuated in the name of Jesus. Anybody ever heard of a, a college campus ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ? Started in the 1960s. You know, if if you go to college campuses today, you will not find a ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ. Did you know that? They changed the name, 2011. Yes, they rebranded as Crew. There was something about, you know, saying we're on this crusade on our campus for Christ that just didn't send the right message uh, to non-believing students that you wanted to reach with the the love of Jesus. And so this language of warfare, admittedly, is maybe uncomfortable for some of us in this room. Typically today, I think we talk more about following Jesus in terms of a journey or a lifestyle. Those are the metaphors we're more comfortable with. This idea that we are in a war or a battle is not language Christians use as much today. Uh, But it is language that's used all throughout the New Testament. We could cite numerous examples of that, including here where where Paul is saying that that he, as a leader in King Jesus' church, as an apostle, as a church planter, as a leader, that he, as it were, is like fighting within the army of King Jesus, who is seeking to conquer, to conquer our hearts and our Minds to bring us into that place of surrendered captivity to Him. He uses this language of warfare. We're invited to think of our lives as a sort of war. But notice with me, what is the nature of this warfare? What is the nature of this war? This is not a war that is fought with guns or with bombs. This is not a war that we're fighting against other people. It's not a war fought within our culture. Maybe you've heard of the the culture wars fighting for more Christian influence or power within our culture, within our politics. This is not a, a, a war to take back our nation that was somehow once a Christian nation. No, rather the nature of this war The battlefield where this war takes place, Paul says, is within our minds. It's within our thoughts. This is a war against lies. It's a war against the, the, the harmful, false ways that we map and make sense of reality. It's a war that takes place within our minds against those lies that if un checked, if unchanged, wreak havoc against our souls. Paul says in verse 5, this is really the, the key verse of this passage, he says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Jesus. This is a war that takes place in our Minds in our thought life, the truths or the lies that we are believing. That's what Paul is speaking to here in the nature of this war. And, and, and notice with me, notice with me too, that the, the way that Jesus wages this war, the way that he seeks to, to conquer us in the, in the thoughts of our minds, notice that it, it's, not, it's not violent. Jesus doesn't use physical violence. Jesus doesn't use threats or fear. Doesn't use coercion or manipulation. Look look how Paul begins this passage in verse 1. He says, By the meekness and the gentleness of Jesus, I appeal to you. By the meekness and the gentleness, the humility of Jesus, I appeal to you. Meaning what? Meaning, Jesus is not interested in making people his begrudging slaves. He's not interested in us sort of feeling the sense that we have this, 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 this duty in spite of the fact that we don't want to have to follow him. We don't want to have to listen to him. We don't want to have to think his thoughts after him. Jesus is not interested in manipulating or coercing people to have to follow him. Now, instead, the way that Jesus wants to conquer our hearts and our minds is, is through his love, his meekness, his gentleness, his self-giving love for us, that we would see the love of Jesus for us and we would say, I love him. I delight in him. I want to surrender to him. I want every part of my life to be brought into submission to him, including my thoughts. It's not coercion. It's rather this this picture of people who would willingly and gladly say, I want to put my thoughts and make them obedient to Jesus. Now, even in saying that, I recognize um, I don't don't know if everybody in this room is is yet a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning, you're not yet a follower of Jesus. And even as you, you hear this, you think, whoa, this mind control That makes me uncomfortable, right? That that, that feels like it is is too much. I mean, is this brainwashing, the thought that, that Jesus wants control over my thoughts? I mean, what right does he have to tell me how I should live my life, much less how I should even think? And I think even for Christians, those of us who are here this morning and you have received Jesus as the Savior and the Lord of your life. The thought that, that he wants my thoughts too, like isn't it enough that I've given him my life? Isn't it enough that I've given him my behavior? Now he also wants my thoughts as well. You know, I was talking to somebody this week and they asked me, what are you preaching on this Sunday? I told them, taking every thought captive, making it obedient to Jesus, he said, <laughs> I'm glad I'm not going to that sermon. He thought that's too much. That sounds overbearing. That just sounds like it's going to be kind of, you know, piling on. I don't know, just the, the sense that, 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 that somehow um, that's going to be really restrictive for me to have to be, be even making my thought life obedient to Jesus. Why does Jesus compare, care about, about having our thoughts in that way? Why does he feel like he has a right to that and expects that? I think that's where we, we go back to that second argument that Metallica made. You remember that one? Here, here's what they said. Remember, they said we, we poured our creativity, our energy, our gifts, our, our time into making this music, into making this art. And so, therefore, we should have the right to say, to control how that art is used because we've made it. I think we'd feel the same way, wouldn't we? If you made a song, especially a hit song that was going to make millions of dollars, if you invented or created anything and then somebody else was using it or selling it, I think you would feel like you have the right